Good morning, church, and welcome once again to our service of worship today. I pray this finds you doing well this week. I want to start off with 1 Corinthians 13, 12. I just want to read this verse to you. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Why do I start with that verse? Because frankly, that verse really sums up my experience with Revelation chapter 20. Of all the chapters in Revelation, this is the one that I'm most leery about preaching because frankly, the more I read and study it, the more overwhelmed I am by it, that the more challenging it is to interpret and understand, the more humbled I am at just how much I don't know, how much we do not understand. As you've probably noticed throughout this series, I've chosen to stay away from a lot of terminology. That is the systematic language theologians have come up with to define and categorize their interpretations of this book and the various eschatologies stemming from it. Now, most preachers who choose to preach through Revelation begin by laying out that terminology. However, I purposely didn't do that because I don't necessarily think interpretive terminology is a helpful starting block. In fact, I've seen how it can actually be more of a stumbling block for the same reason that it's a problem when students of Scripture run first to commentaries about God's Word before running to and reading God's Word itself. Listen once again to God's promise in Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. At several different points in this series, I've suggested that it's less about fully understanding this revelation of Jesus in our heads and more about being fully overwhelmed by this revelation of Jesus in our hearts, brought to our knees in humble adoration and worship, in reverent awe of and obedience to Jesus. See, I don't believe God has given us this revelation so that we can theorize the past or, or so that we can predict the future. I believe he's given us this revelation in order to help us obey in the present, my friends. Revelation is, is a practical book that ought to inspire our worship and guide our discipleship. Well, our passage today in Revelation 20 is notorious for being one of, if not the most difficult to interpret passages in all of Scripture, in part because it's the only place in the Bible that speaks of the millennium, that is the 1,000-year reign of Jesus, which John mentions no less than six times in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 of Revelation 20. Consequently, these 10 verses, Revelation 1 to 10, are the source of great long-standing debate and controversy amongst Christian scholars and interpreters. So while I've generally refrained from interpretive terminology thus far, today I think it's important to briefly explain the three most widely held eschatological interpretations of the millennium, at least at this point in church history. Each term is distinguished by a prefix attached to the word millennium. There is pre-millennialism, <laughs> pre post-millennialism, and ah-millennialism. 
and for simplicity's sake, I'm going to refer to them as pre-mill, post-mill, and ah-mill. So let's start with pre-millennialism. The prefix pre means before. And so pre-mills believe Jesus will return before the millennium. Now, the pre-mills can be divided into two groups. There's the classic pre-mills and the dispensational pre-mills. Classic pre-mills, which, which stem from the time of church, the church fathers, believes that when Jesus returns, he will establish his kingdom on the earth for 1,000 years, a period of time which may be symbolic or literal. However, it does not hold to the idea that there will be a secret rapture before the, the time of the Great Tribulation. The early Christians didn't believe that. It's, it's a relatively new idea. This historical perspective understands the new people of God to be the church, and therefore the promises God made to the nation of Israel will be fulfilled in the history of the church, both before and after the second coming of Christ. Some classic pre-mills also point out that there will be a revival amongst the Jews just before the Lord's return. Okay, then there's dispensational premillennialism which is different from classic premillennialism because it believes that Christ will rapture his church. Dispensational premills, uh, and by the way, this didn't really become prominent until the 19th century. They put a lot of emphasis on the nation of Israel more so than classic premills. They believe once the church is raptured, God will begin to work with the nation of Israel as in the days of the old covenant. The Jews will preach the gospel and many Israelites and Gentiles will come to faith in Jesus before his return. In the millennium, God will literally fulfill all the promises he made to Israel in the Old Testament under the physical rule of Jesus on earth. And the nation will reign throughout the whole earth for a literal 1,000 years. Not 999, not 1,001, 1,000. Okay, next, there is post-millennialism. The prefix post meaning after. So in contrast to pre-mill, Post-mill believes that Jesus' second coming will take place after the millennium, not before. Since scripture speaks of the millennium as a time of great prosperity for the kingdom of God, post-mills are very optimistic. According to this view, which was championed by many of the English Puritans who believed that a widespread revival would take place amongst Jews and Gentiles before the Lord's return, the world is in an ongoing and constant process of progress in the gospel. In post-mill thought, the 1,000 years do not have to be literal. They merely symbolize a long time of advancement for the cause of the gospel. Post-millennialism reached its high point in the 19th century, but then was largely abandoned by many of its proponents following the terrible tragedies of the First and Second World Wars. Finally, there's amillennialism. The prefix a means no, and so... Amils do not expect a millennium, at least not as the others understand it. It would be unfair to say that Amils do not believe in a millennium at all. They simply believe that it's symbolic, a heavenly reality, and not an earthly one. And like in post-millennialism, that the 1,000 years are not literal, but simply symbolize a long period of time. According to Amillennialism, Christ is ruling right now over his church from heaven alongside his saints. And Satan is currently bound in the sense that he can't stop people from hearing the gospel and believing in Jesus. Like classic premillennialism, amillennialism enjoyed good standing amongst the church fathers. But unlike the premill stance, amills do not believe that Christ will establish a literal 1,000 year reign on the earth after his second coming. In their understanding, 
Once Jesus comes back, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And unlike dispensational pre-mills, all mills do not believe that there will be a rapture. Okay, so question is, which of these views is right? That is, which view or combination of views is the most faithful to Scripture, to what John saw and understood? Well, in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, pastor and author Daryl Johnson, who preached in our online service back on April 11th, suggests that there are two important points to keep in mind as we try to properly understand and interpret these verses. First, we must understand that each of these options has been developed by godly students of the Bible, people who are sincerely seeking to understand God's word and submit their lives to it. Therefore, in choosing between these options, we're not choosing between conservative or liberal or between those who believe in the divine inspiration of the, of the Bible and those who don't. The truth is, all of these options have been developed by equally committed disciples of Jesus. Secondly, each of these options sees something in Revelation to which the others are blind or which the others choose not to take into account. Each option both grasps truth and misses truth. No single interpretation is watertight. No human designed biblical system can finally replace the biblical text itself. All systematizers, however well motivated, must always keep submitting their systems to the scrutiny of Scripture itself. So Johnson concludes this. If faithfulness to the biblical text is measured by how long a position has been around, then the Amil position, position probably wins. It's been held since the 2nd century AD. It was most powerfully articulated by St. Augustine in the 4th century. And by the way, John Calvin was also an amillennialist. Now, if faithfulness to the biblical text is measured by the degree of confidence in the transforming power of the gospel, then the post-mill position probably wins. If faithfulness to the biblical text is measured by zeal for the Lord's return, then probably the pre-mill position wins. So, which view is the most faithful? How should we interpret the millennium? Will it be an earthly kingdom where Jesus will reign on earth for 1,000 years, or a heavenly kingdom where Jesus reigns spiritually right now? Where do we start? Well, <laughs> we start right here in Revelation 20. Being that this is the only place in the Bible that actually mentions the thousand-year reign of Christ, today we're going to step through these verses so that we can at least see how two of the most widely held yet divergent views, that of premillennialism versus amillennialism, understand these verses. Okay, now last week we saw the setting of the second coming of Christ. As the Antichrist assembles a vast army from across the earth to, to slaughter God's people. However, the slaughterers become the slaughtered as Jesus, the King of Kings, crowned with many crowns and with eyes like blazing fire, comes riding on a white horse with heaven's armies following him. And he strikes down the enemy with the razor sharp sword of God's word coming out of his mouth. And then as we read in verse 20, the beast was captured and with him the false prophet. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves in their flesh. Which brings us to our passage today. Revelation 20, starting with verses 1, 2, and 3. John writes, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. John now sees an angel coming down out of heaven with the key to the abyss, that demonic prison of punishment that we saw back in Revelation 9 with the sounding of the fifth trumpet. Well, here, this angel seizes Satan, he binds him, he shackles him with a great chain and throws him into the prison of the abyss for a thousand years. Why? We're told why. To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended, as we read in verse 3. See, Satan's strategy has always been deception. It's how he operates. He's, he lies. He's a liar and the father of lies, as Jesus called him in John eight forty four. And here we see that God's purpose in binding Satan is, is to finally stop the lies. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, Jesus referred to Satan as the strong man and talked about binding the strong man in order to rescue people from the kingdom of darkness. Well, the binding of Satan is a central idea in amillennialism. Amills argue that's precisely what the 1,000 years is. It's the binding of Satan's power to deceive people from believing in Jesus. Now, if there is a literal millennium, according to pre-mills, the people who live on earth at that time will still have to turn in faith to Jesus like everyone else has, but Satan will be bound. That They will have the incredible advantage of not having to battle him or an evil world system in order to, to do that. But that does not guarantee that everyone will be a follower of Jesus. Though Satan will be bound and the gospel unhindered, according to this interpretation, pre-mills, that the sinful nature will still be an issue, which we'll come back to in a minute. Now, here we see that the binding of Satan is for a specific period of time. 1,000 years. A phrase that, again, is used six times in these verses, which is significant because apart from this chapter, the term 1,000 years only appears three other times in the Bible, including 2 Peter 3.8. Where in describing the coming day of the Lord, Peter says, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The point Peter's making is, God's timing's very different than ours. Though, though to us, Jesus' return seems like a long time in coming, from God's point of view, it hasn't been long at all. In each passage where 1,000 years is used, it means a really long time. However, that doesn't mean that we should not take it literally. So coming back to the binding of Satan, the main issue between those who believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth and those who don't is this important question. Is Satan bound right now? That's, that's critical. Amills say yes. Satan is bound right now. How? Well, they'll say he's bound from deceiving the elect who are protected from Satan's lies and are able to believe in and follow Jesus. And so then, Ah Mills believed that this passage refers to the incredible spread of the gospel over the entire church age, arguing that whenever somebody repents and turns in faith to Jesus, that's evidence that Satan is in fact bound. To pre-Mills, that just doesn't cut it. They'll say, really? How can you possibly look at the world around us and say that Satan is bound? They'll argue that the binding described in these verses completely restrains Satan. That his activity will not just be blocked, he will be locked away in a pit, thrown into the abyss, rendering him absolutely powerless. All satanic influence will be eliminated for the 1,000 years, meaning that no one will be deceived by him. 
So they'll say, how can Satan be said to be bound when he just seems so active? Just like Peter describes in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. There we read, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Okay, well... The work of interpretation gets much more involved as we come to verses 4 to 6, which may be the most controversial verses. They're certainly the source of ongoing discussion and debate amongst Christian scholars. These verses describe the millennial reign of those saints who will reign with Christ for 1,000 years. Here's what we read, verses 4, 5, and 6. John writes, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Okay. Now the challenge to interpreters here is why is this particular group of martyrs who will be beheaded during the tribulation under the reign of the beast specifically and specially chosen to be given this authority and empowered to reign with Christ for a thousand years. Well, Amils suggests that these verses refer to all martyrs throughout all church history who will end up reigning with Christ in heaven. They'll argue that's exactly what verse 4 is saying. And so they'll suggest that the phrase came to life in verse 5 refers not to bodily resurrection, but to spiritual regeneration. That is being born again of the Spirit through faith in Jesus. And thus they propose this point's to heaven, where in some sense all Christians will reign with Christ. And this is certainly a possible interpretation. Premills, on the other hand, say that this is a very special group of martyrs beheaded for their faith under the reign of the beast and who will actually be raised from the dead in resurrection bodies and join with Christ in reigning physically on a semi-new or partially restored earth during the millennium. I say partially restored because we have to keep in mind the earth will have been almost completely destroyed by the trumpet and bowl judgments that we've been looking at. So if the millennium kingdom is literally established on the earth, it'll have to be repaired, which of course we know Jesus can do with the simple word of his mouth. Then we read this in Revelation 20 verse 5. This is in brackets. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Okay, who are these? According to the Amil understanding, the rest of the dead are unbelievers who will be raised from the dead to face God's judgment and wrath. Now, there are some pre-mills who agree with that understanding. However, there are others who suggest that the rest of the dead are actually unmartyred saints. Those who, though absent from the body, will be present with the Lord in heaven for the thousand years and then will be resurrected in their glorified bodies at the end of the millennium. So again, two very different understandings here. Verse 5 continues, This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, thankfully, we know for sure that the second death is a reference to hell because Revelation 20 verses 14 and 15 tell us so. There we read, The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And verse 6 tells us that the second death, or hell, has no power over them, them being the priests of God and of Christ, who will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, according to premillennialism, 
Priests of God and of Christ is a reference to the reigning, administering role of the millennial priests, who will nurture and guide Christians in their faith in Jesus on the earth during the 1,000 years. Which brings us back to the big question. Where does all this take place? Are these saints reigning with Jesus on earth or in heaven? Well, just to review, according to amillennialism, this is definitely a heavenly picture of the saints reigning with Christ in heaven after they die. And again, the thousand years is a symbolic reference to the entire church age for them. But according to premillennialism, this is an earthly reality, pointing to the literal rule of Christ on earth, along with a special group of chosen martyrs who will reign with him. Which brings us to verses 7, 8, and 9. There we read, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Okay. According to Ah Mills, these verses refer to the end of history that we read about and have been studying in Revelation, the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowl judgments, which come at the end of the church age following the incredible spread of the gospel. And it's at this time that Satan will be released to deceive the nations and assemble a vast army for the final battle of Armageddon that we looked at last week. So then, according to Ah Mills, the, the battle at the end of chapter 19 and here in chapter 20, verse 8, are one and the same. It's just a different telling of it. According to pre-mills, these verses point to the end of the millennial reign of Jesus on earth. Even though these thousand years will have been the most glorious and blessed time, a quasi-paradise on earth, as I mentioned earlier, the sinful nature will still exist and will be ruling in the hearts of those who haven't repented and turned in faith to Jesus. Now, this can certainly be a challenging thought, difficult for some to reconcile. The fact that Jesus will be physically reigning and ruling on earth, having bound Satan and thrown him into the abyss, eliminating his influence, and yet there will still be many unbelievers who will suddenly be ready to follow Satan in one last attempt to overthrow Christ at the end of the 1,000 years, when Satan will be released, as we read, and allowed to travel the world, deceive the nations, and recruit a vast army in order to defy Christ and attack the earthly holy city where he rules. Now, the terms Gog and Magog that John uses here come from Ezekiel 38 and 39, where they refer to Gentile rulers who gather from far and wide to invade and destroy Israel. Well, here, Gog and Magog are symbolic names to refer to the last remnant of unbelieving people from across the earth who will gather for battle against Jesus under Satan's leadership at the end of the millennium. And shockingly, as we see there in verse 8, in number they are like sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Now, even though the Antichrist isn't mentioned here, again, Amil suggests this is just a recap of the final battle that we read about in Revelation 19, we looked at last week. But pre-mills believe that this is another battle, a subsequent one, that, that will take place at the end of the 1,000 years. And they point to the fact that in verse 10, we read that the Antichrist and false prophet are already in the lake of burning sulfur which would indicate that the thousand years and this final battle are not describing the same events. However, just like the so-called battle that we looked at last week, this one will be a very quick affair, over before it starts. No contest at all for God Almighty. 
Again, like chapter 19, apart from the assembling of Satan's army, there is absolutely no description of any fighting whatsoever. It's like before Satan's army can even fire a single shot or draw a single spear. What do we read there? Verse 9, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Revelation 20 verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan will finally get what he deserves and what he knows has been coming to him all along as he's thrown into the lake of burning sulfur created for him and his demons along with the beast and the false prophet who will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever just as they deserve. Okay, so coming back to the question, how should we interpret this passage which of the views about the millennium is the most faithful? Okay, drum roll, please. We don't know. Only the Lord knows. If nothing else, I trust this brief look at these differing views held and supported by sincere followers of Jesus Christ seeking to be faithful to his word proves the difficulty and complexity of interpreting Revelation 20. And it ought to instill in us a deep, deep humility. Humility and reverence in approaching God's word. A quickness to admit we don't know everything. And that's okay. The word theology literally means thinking about God. It is our thoughts and understanding about God and his word. But let us never forget that our thoughts about God are not the same as God's thoughts. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 1 Corinthians 2.11, Paul said, No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. See, there's a difference between good theology and God's theology. There's a difference between our good interpretation and God's own interpretation. So while it's up to us to choose how we interpret these verses, it is my prayer that we would do it with the utmost care, prayer, and humility by the Holy Spirit's leading, remembering this, that the only real, true, and ultimate interpretation belongs to God and God alone. My friends, he is the only one who knows and holds the future that we're reading about here. In fact, I, I often wonder if God shakes his head at us as, as we debate these positions and interpretations, as we, we type more papers and spill more ink trying to systematize and articulate and promote our, our understanding of these things that at the end of the day may well prove to be our misunderstanding of these things. You've probably noticed that at various points throughout this series, I've given voice and explanation to aspects of each of these views. Because even though no single system has it all right, I think there's merit to, to each one. Though I must say, 
the more I study, the more I resonate with the person who said, I'm a pan-millennialist. In the end, I believe it'll all pan out according to God's plan. In all seriousness, I appreciate what Daryl Johnson concludes about the millennium. He said this, Thankfully, the reality packed into the word millennium is not tied to our understanding of the millennium at all. That is, no matter where we come out on it, if we are in Jesus Christ, we participate in the millennial reality, whatever it is. My friends, the good news is that no matter what your position on the millennium is today, one day all followers of Jesus Christ will understand perfectly what all of this means. So coming back to where we started, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, though today we see dimly, one day we will know fully even as we are fully known. But the good news goes even beyond that, my friends, because one day all followers of Jesus are going to lay hold of and experience everything won for us through our risen, conquering, and returning King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. So as we continue to study Revelation, as we continue to live by the Spirit and walk according to his word, may we never lose sight of the purpose and the call of Christ in Revelation, which is to live obedient lives, holy and pleasing to him. May we live victorious lives because, my friends, we are more than conquerors through Christ. And may we remain faithful to him no matter the cost, because in the end, God's word promises us he wins. Jesus reigns. Jesus rules and he will make all things right. So in light of these things, what kind of people ought we to be? Well, as Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.11, we ought to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Amen. on me, breath of God, fill me with life anew, that I may love what Thou dost love, and do what Thou wouldst do. Breathe on me, breath of God, until my heart is pure, until my will is one with thine, to do and to part of me glows with thy fire divine breathe on me breath of God so shall I never die 
but live with thee the perfect life of thine eternity. Breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life What thou dost love And do what thou wouldst do Thank you for joining in our service of worship today. And now receive the Lord's blessing. This is from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen. The Lord bless you this week.